Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome to the Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's Serious Moments. Stories of oddness, of weirdness of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Hello everybody, welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments. It's not unusual if you are an entertainer, be it a musician, an actor, or actress, or even an author to change their name for stage purposes or for recognition or for anonymity, for that matter. We have a lot of different types of entertainers who have changed their names over the years but we always tend to find out who they really were, who were they were born. Um, some instances are Conway Twitty, the country singer who was born Harold Lloyd Jenkins, or actor John Wayne, who was born Marion Robert Morrison, or the actor Cary Grant, who was born Archibald Alec Leach. See, there are some reasons for changing your name to make it more manly or maybe more star quality, if you will. If we think about Stephen King, he writes under Stephen King. He writes under Richard Bachman. He's famous in both names. H.H. Monroe, from a long time back, went by the pen name of Saki, S-A-K-I. Benjamin Franklin himself used a pen name at the age of 16 when he was a an apprentice on his brother's newspaper. His brother would not print any of the stuff that he had written. So he adopted the pen name of Silence Do-Good, who was a middle-aged widow, in order to send letters into the paper to get them published. Bob Dylan, the singer, was born Robert Allen Zimmerman but we all know him as Bob Dylan. And the list goes on. And there can be any of a number of reasons to use a different name in the pursuit of fame. But to assume a persona claiming a race or ethnicity you are not, then living in that persona for 50 years to the point of not publicly acknowledging your own family or making visits to them while still in the persona under the cover of darkness and in a very minimal frame of time 
and keeping it up for 50 years to the time of death would, it would seem to me, be very hard emotionally. But the subject of this episode did exactly that. In 1948, television was gaining a foothold in the USA, but there weren't a lot of choices of programming to be had. Creativity was needed, and many instances, some uniqueness was needed to grab a place in this relatively new medium. In 1948, while in Hollywood at a Furrier's fashion show, television producer Klaus Landsberg witnessed something that he thought had that very same uniqueness. He witnessed a man named Corla Pandit who wore a turban while performing. He was playing an organ, and Landsberg offered Corla a television show with the stipulation that the musician would also provide accompaniment for Time for Beanie, which was Bob Clampett's popular puppet show. Corla Pandit's Adventures in Music was first telecast on Los Angeles station KTLA in February of 1949. It was the first all-music program on television. Viewers soon became familiar with the musical opening called The Magnetic Theme, and Landsberg suggested that Corla refrain from speaking and just gaze into the camera as he played the Hammond organ and Steinway Grand Piano, sometimes simultaneously. Not once in 900 performances did he speak on camera, preferring instead to communicate with viewers via that hypnotic gaze. Corla said, I never spoke, yet I received letters from around the world from people who knew exactly what was on my mind. Pandit said, Once I asked a parapsychologist if it were possible that the technology that transmitted my image and music could also transmit my brain waves, and he said yes, it was possible. You know, sex sells, and we know that all too well nowadays, and it sells even better with a dash of mystery. For every housewife in mid-century America, the enigmatic charm of the Indian performer Korla Pandit was the ticket to getting weak in the knees before the kids came home from school. In the 15 minutes allotted to the Korla Pandit program, the performer brought a scintillating new rhythm to suburbia's ho-hum beat. Every week, he'd grace the small screen and play the sultry sounds of Miserloo with a coy smile, wearing a bejeweled turban, and flashing those soul-searching bedroom eyes. Corla Pandit became a star and one of early television's pioneering musical artists. Almost overnight, he became a phenomenon, explains John Turner, who was a friend of Pandit, who made a documentary on the musician in 2015. Like everyone else outside of his immediate family, Turner believed Pandit's story. He also believed in his talent to connect with people from his core and said he was breaking the fourth wall with a gaze that in saying nothing said oh so much. In a 1975 article in the Independent Journal, it was said that Pandit is a puzzle inside an enigma wrapped in a turban. One thing to know about Pandit was that he was called the grandfather of exotica. Now the genre of exotica 
is very specific to post-World War II America when daydreams of the Orient and Shangri-La ran wild. The exotica genre was born from a kind of messy fetishism and Pandit was put on its pedestal. To our eyes, he seemed rather demure. Still, in 1950, it was remarkable to see a non-white man host his own show. Not to mention, it was a good one. Pandit played the organ with his hands, wrists, and elbows in a state of calm, but somehow complete rapture. As one man in Turner's documentary says, it tickled a special chakra. For decades, the performer was lauded as a genius of the genre, playing a mix of contemporary covers and his own mystical tunes. He widened the array of music associated with the organ and popularized its use. Corla Pandit acquired notable friends such as Errol Flynn, comedian Bob Hope, and Sabu Dastagir, known for his roles in the documentary Elephant Boy and the feature Thief of Baghdad. After years of loyalty to Landsberg in KTLA, Pandit asked for a raise. He was making not nearly as much as his white contemporaries, but had three times the talent. When Landsberg refused, Pandit walked and found new work playing with another up-and-coming guy on the nightclub circuit, Liberace. In some ways, Pandit made Liberace. The knack for eccentricities, the ability to gaze up from the piano and into the audience's soul, these were all skills Pandit said he passed on. Unfortunately, the downsides of the show business industry, namely the creative control it had over artists, soured Pandit's career. He said syndication companies also held their talent on a tight leash, often refusing to pay them, prompting them to churn out hits. I could see where things were headed then, he said, about stepping out of the limelight. I refused to allow them to use me, to rob people. I refused to do business with them, so they hired Liberace instead. In 1956, Corla moved to San Francisco and performed on San Francisco's KGO TV. He began speaking on his show, espousing a blend of spiritual ideas that entranced many of his fans. He became friends with Paramahansa Yogananda, who was an Indian spiritual leader of the Self-Realization Fellowship. Their relationship was close enough that Yogananda wrote an introduction to the liner notes for one of Korla's records, and Korla played at Yogananda's funeral. The late 1950s was the time of the Beat Generation, which saw many Americans embrace spiritualism and Eastern religions while rejecting traditional values, including the need to conform to society's norms and economic materialism. Korla incorporated a variety of these topics in his talks, including mysticism and Zen philosophy. He was becoming followed almost as much as a spiritual leader as he was a musician. After moving to Canada, Corla returned regularly to the San Francisco and Los Angeles areas for work. In the 1970s, as his television popularity waned, 
he supplemented his income with a variety of increased personal appearances and performances, continuing to perform at supper clubs, supermarket openings, car agencies, music and department stores, pizza restaurants, lectures, music seminars, private lessons, and the theater organ circuit. He made a cameo appearance as himself in the biographical film about the director Ed Wood, done by Tim Burton, which drew renewed attention to him. Corla's career was revived in the 90s, and he attracted a new generation, taking them under his wing. The Tiki Lounge music revival gave Corla one last career resurgence and cult following. He recorded with the Muffs. Now, I have no idea who that is. And Corla also performed a sold-out show at the legendary Bimbo's 365 Club in San Francisco. Corla Pandit died in Petaluma, California on October 1st of 1998. He was survived by his wife, Beryl, and their sons, Shari and Coram. Coram would later rename himself John Pandit. Shari has since passed away. Two years after Corla's death, R.J. Smith, magazine editor of Los Angeles, published an article revealing startling facts about Corla Pandit. Corla Pandit didn't exist. He was, in fact, named John Red, and he was from a minister's family in Missouri, not from a Brahmin family in New Delhi, India. In 1921, John Roland Red was born in St. Louis, Missouri. His father, Ernest Red, was an African-American Baptist pastor. Red's mother, Dosha Onina Johnson, had Anglo and African ancestry. Both parents were descended from African-American enslaved persons. Red was one of seven children and had light skin and straight hair. In 1922, Red's family moved to Hannibal, Missouri, where they lived for nine years. In 1931, they reportedly moved to Columbia, where Red's father was pastor of the second largest Baptist church in town. The so-called Jim Crow restrictions in the state meant that Red and his siblings attended racially segregated public schools for children of color. The Red family later recalled John Red as a musical prodigy from the age of three. He could hear a song once and have it memorized, and family members taught him to play piano from an early age. A contemporary of Red's, the jazz pianist called Sir Charles Thompson, knew Red from Columbia, where they attended high school together. Later in life, Thompson remembered that as a teenager, Red was the better piano player of the two. The whole Red family was musically talented. Red's two sisters sang and one played piano. His older brother Ernest Red Jr., known as Speck because of his freckles, also became a jazz pianist and later a band leader in Des Moines, Iowa. John and Ernest Red played in groups with their older brother Harry, who was also a musician. In the early 1940s, Red met his sister Frances's white friend and roommate, Beryl June DeBeeson, a Disney artist and former dancer. They fell in love, 
1944, they married in Tijuana, Mexico, as interracial marriages were then prohibited in California. Red and Beryl created a new entertainment persona for Red's use. There was a popular mid-century movie that came out at the time in which an African-American man very clearly passes as an Indian man. And it almost certainly planted the seeds for Corla Pandit, whose story did have a few kernels of truth. Like Red, he was one of six kids. He was a prodigy on the piano. He believed in the healing power of music. They thought Red could have exotic appeal by passing as an Indian because most Americans did not know much about people from India. Beryl designed the makeup and clothing Red would use, and Red took the name Corla Pandit. He developed an elaborate history and continued to add to it during his career. He stated that he had been born in New Delhi, India, to a French opera singer and an Indian Brahmin government official. Supposedly raised in an upper-class Indian household, Red claimed to have studied music in England as a child, arrived in the United States at age 12, and studied at the University of Chicago. Red used the Corla Pandit persona in public and in private for the rest of his life. In 1948, Red created and played background music as Corla Pandit, for the revival of radio's occult adventure series, Chandu the Magician, achieving atmospheric effects on the Novacord and the Hammond CV, which is the ancestor of the C3 electronic organ. In 1949, he became a regular organist on Hollywood Holiday, a show that was broadcast from a Los Angeles restaurant. During his life, Red kept in touch with his family of origin, but he wore his turban and did not bring his sons when visiting with him. According to Red's nephew, Ernest Red, among the family we knew what he was doing and very little was said about it. There was times when he would come by and it was kind of like a sneak visit. He might come at night sometimes and be gone before we got up. He had to separate himself from the family to a certain extent. They would go see him play, but they wouldn't speak to him. They would go to his show, and then they would leave, and then the family would greet him at a later time. Allison Hobbs, an assistant professor of history at Stanford University, wrote A Chosen Exile, a history of racial passing in American life. Now, what they mean by racial passing is that if you're a light-skinned black person, you might can pass for white, or Indian for that matter, or if you're one race you can pass for another is what it means. Having met members of Red's extended family of origin, Hobbes has said that they felt he was very authentic and were very close to him. Red's sons heard rumors about their father's background, but were only told of his and their own African-American heritage after his death. Shari Pandit died before the publication of Smith's 2001 article and John Pandit rejected Smith's findings. Intrigued by the Smith article, John Turner and Eric Christensen, retired TV producers who had each known Red in his later years, made a documentary entitled Corla, which came out in 2014. The duo wrote and produced the film together, and Turner directed it. They interviewed an array of friends, 
fellow musicians, and family, discussing Red's life and achievements and exploring the complexities of racial identity. After Corla was widely released, various media outlets commented on Red's history, casting it as a classic American story of self-invention. When Turner decided to go ahead with the documentary on his friend's life, it was never with malicious intent. We wanted to give Corla his props as the first African-American to have a television program. He told NBC upon his documentary's release, he was talking about the universe of music being the universal language of love. He sincerely did believe in it being a tool to better the universe. In that sense, Corla Pandit was the realest thing in the world. But can you imagine living for 50 years and not being able to openly speak to your family, visit them, and even if you go out and mow the yard, you go out in your persona. Can you imagine that? Well, like I said, there are many artists, whether it's musical singing or writing or acting, who change their names, and some of them may adopt a certain way of speaking, a certain way of walking, you know, just a different air about them when they're in their persona. But so many of them can revert back to just who they were at, a, at the drop of a hat. I have I've listened to Corla Pandit's music. I have seen different shows about him. And he was a very interesting individual. But one of the things that caught my ear was on one of the documentaries. He was quoted as saying that whenever a person from India would come up to talk to him, he would decline to speak because his excuse was that he had been away from India for so long that his accent may be offensive to the true Indians. So he would not talk to them. See how tough it is when you're not living the truth? Now, Corla Pandit became John Red's truth. His wife knew it was fake. His children didn't. But I guess that's to be expected if that's all you ever see. His dad's wearing a turban. So, what do you mean he's black? Anyway, Corla Pandit is an interesting individual. John Red is an interesting individual. Put them together, they make a very interesting individual. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from... The Witching Hour, and Unexplained Cases. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. 
That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories. Nothing in particular. No particular genre. Just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.